Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to study about Moses as an exemplary person who had faith, and his faith was demonstrated by certain things that happened in his life. Last week we were talking about verse 25, but let me reiterate that. Moses, it says here in Hebrews 11:25, chose to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. And there's a number of ways that you endure ill treatment with the people of God. One of the ways is that when you're with the true people of God, then the world hates you. But another way is the people of God will ill-treat you too. <laughs> now, I say that literally because that's what happened to Moses. He, after they got out into the wilderness, the, the people of God were grumbling and complaining and they didn't like Moses and they wished they'd go back to Egypt. Now, I would affirm that it's good and necessary to be with the people of God even as we together walk with Him People aren't perfected. And you will get hurt. And people will let you down. Amen. It happened in the Bible. But if we can keep focused on the truth of the Gospel and what God's done and what's right and what's true, and we can agree on that, the Lord will help us um, as have more Gospel unity. But here, he he made a decision and is couched in moral terms here in the Bible as a moral decision between greater and lesser advantage. Now, apparently, being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter would be a great advantage if you're just thinking about the world, right? Egypt had all the money, all the power, all the privilege, and to be in the lineage of Pharaoh would be in line to have the greatest prestige in the entire ancient world. And what happened? He beat up one of the Egyptians, right? Killed him. That's right. He killed an Egyptian. And then he fled for 40 years. Now let's look at the passage here. Uh, let's see, what, what are, I'm going to do a little extra study here. 371. Uh, I was going to quote William Lane. The expression, he went out to his brother's was understood traditionally to mean that Moses chose to dissociate himself from the Egyptian court. Um, what we were talking about last week, for those of you who weren't here, is the, is the issue is um, this is not, the whole story isn't laid out in Exodus. We just know part of it. And where did this information come that the author of Hebrews is, is drawing upon about becoming aware of who he, who he was and the various things that he did here. And this was part of Jewish tradition that is mentioned by people like Philo and Josephus. And so the author of Hebrews is addressing these Jewish people who would be familiar with this tradition and would have looked at it that way and therefore could make a connection and understand how Moses is exemplary. It says here, a moral choice was clearly forced upon Moses for the, um, because why? He has to choose whether to be a part of Egypt or part of the people of God. So, uh, it says here, by the, his forceful intervention on behalf of a Hebrew slave, Moses confessed himself to be a Hebrew 
and thus effectively denied he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So what the Bible tells us was that he intervened. And that intervention made the choice for him because then his cover was blown. Amen. If there ever was any. So the thing that he did, that the Bible says he took action. And he killed somebody. In, in, in behalf of um, the Jews. And so he fled. Let's go to verse 26. Here's telling us more why. This gives us the motive of why Moses did this. It says here, Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Wow. How exactly can it be said that Moses was considering the reproach of Christ when there was still no Christ? Oh, do you want, you want me to answer that? No, Keith, go ahead. <laughs> Moses would have known of the promise that they were going to leave Egypt that was given to Abraham. He was raised by his own mother as a she was his nurse that got saw fit that his own mother was actually his nurse even though he was raised in Pharaoh's court. And then he went in there with the promise that they would leave in four hundred years and they would leave with great wealth and that God had a plan for them. And he was looking forward to that promise and he knew even then that this slavery in Egypt was just temporary. It wasn't going to be permanent. And he intervened on that behalf. And it doesn't condemn him for murdering the Egyptian. No. The Egyptian was actually exploiting Israel unjustly. Right. But he made his choice and God uh, blessed his choice. How about the Messiah? Well, we talked about this a little last week, but I agree with Keith. From what we know from the Pentateuch, God had already told Abraham that his descendants were going to be 400 years as slaves. And that God would bring them out. Moses must have had that information, yes. And also having that information, he was looking forward to the Messiah. Right. He understood, I mean, you can tell by his writings in the Pentateuch, whatever, that he understood who Messiah was. Yes, that there was uh, already in Torah the promises to, for Messiah. And if he knew about the 400 years, which you would have known, which is in Genesis 15, but for us, but he would have heard it orally because uh, Moses wrote it later. He would have also known about Genesis 12:3, which is in in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed, which is a messianic promise. And so, by by, I I think the way it would be is not that he totally understood exactly because it says later they didn't. They looked into these things. The Holy Spirit was showing them. But the fullness is not revealed until later when, when Christ does come on the scene. But yet he believed that they were a special people. They were descendants of Abraham. That there had been a promise given to his, his grand, great-great-grandfather Abraham. And that uh, there were going to be blessing to all the families of the earth. Yes. In one sense, too, it doesn't say that this is considering the reproach of Christ's greater was at the time when he killed the Egyptian and could have also been referring to the time when they were leaving because as a whole people, they were willing to leave Egypt 
And the whole motive given to Pharaoh was we're going to go out and sacrifice in the wilderness. Mm-hmm. Sacrifice would be looking forward to the sacrifice that God gave for the remission of sin. So we even then, through the Passover and through the sacrifices in the wilderness, they were prefiguring Christ. Right. Christ is seen all through Exodus. Um, when I was in Bible college, I read a book by Arthur Pink called Gleanings in Exodus. So I don't know if there's as many types as he found. But boy, does he have a does his mind work over time if you ever read that. There's thousands of types of Christ, according to Pink. But it's very interesting reading Kathy. Oh, in John 5.46 it says, For he believed Moses and did the things where he wrote about me. John 5.46 Moses wrote about me. That's an that's interesting uh, passage because... You know, once you get into this higher critical analysis and the liberals and stuff are saying, well, the way Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, they were written by, you know, J-E-D-P, the Yahwehists, the Deuteronomy, the Elohim, the whatever, the priestly or whatever. And and so then they had these color-coded Bibles. You know, J wrote this and E wrote this. And it's kind of a... Actually, the interesting thing, that's falling into just disuse even amongst the liberals because they finally realize it doesn't help you understand anything. But I have a real simple reason to believe Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Jesus said, Moses wrote on me. I'll I'll go by what Jesus says, not these guys in Germany sitting in some university somewhere. Um, Now, was there a transmission process? Yes. But we don't need to know what is except the word. Yes. I mean, she mentioned humility over there, and she's right. That's back to Moses' humanity. He was real tough in killing that guy, but when he left 40 years later after God humbled him, he didn't serve God right away. After he got humbled, he says, I can't even speak on your behalf, Lord. And yet he was eloquent. He would have been the next Pharaoh, and he was, he, he was very highly intelligent, and he could speak excellent. But he's telling God he can't speak. All of a sudden, he's killing somebody. Look at his humanity. He's real tough for God. But now, 40 years later, he's, he's humble. Yeah, didn't, the they, didn't they he's call, the didn't, didn't they call him that? Calls him, oh, have Aaron speak on my behalf. Yeah, God humble him. He had to realize, when you serve the Lord, you're actually right. You don't serve acting high and mighty. You will be humble. And God says through Micah, three things I want. To walk humbly, to love sincerely, and to do justice. And Moses learned them. I totally agree. Okay, let's go here. Uh, I had another citation from Lane because he, like Christ, chose to suffer the suffering of the people of God. The reproach he bore is the reproach of Christ. Like Christ, Moses exchanged the joy he could have had for the endurance of hardship with the people of God. The reproach he incurred was abuse endured for the cause of Christ in the specific sense that he identified himself with God's people sharing their hardship and their content, uh, contempt. Um, so, yes? Well, just in that same concept of enduring afflictions, even in the Gospel we're promised afflictions. Yes. So now we have afflictions. And as we preach the Gospel ourselves, it's silly to say you're not going to. It's not a Gospel of prosperity. It's a Gospel of afflictions now for an ultimate prosperity in eternity. Amen. I, I, I totally agree. It's always been the same case. If you're going to join yourself to Abraham and become uh, and take part of his promise, you had to become a wanderer with Abraham. And, or, and that's an, or an outsider, outsider, or a sojourner, or a, a pilgrim. Paul became a, he 
became a Christian, or when the Christians became a Christian in that culture, it was the same thing. We were, right. were becoming outside of what was the mainstream, either in Judaism or outside of what was the mainstream in Roman culture, and now we have affliction. Right. And that's, that. you know what, that's the, absolutely the bottom line, I think, today, just for the issues facing the church today. Are we willing to be outsiders as far as the world's concerned? Yeah, because of the gospel. Because if we just preach the gospel as the way it is, it, it alienates us from the world. Amen. And and that means we won't have accolades, we won't be popular, or what have you. And that's always been true. I totally agree with, with you, Keith. The true gospel has always made hostility with the world. Amen. Um, and that's part of the afflictions of Christ. And why did he do it? Because he saw the unseen. We're going to read this in a moment. And why would anybody do it today? Because we really do believe there's a heaven. We really do believe there's a hell. We do believe that Christ is coming again. And that the, even though we have seen them, that his, the future promises that have been given to the people of God are real and concrete through the eyes of faith. And if we suffer lack in this life for the sake of Christ, that it's a super bargain. <laughs> Like uh, John MacArthur says, MacArthur is preaching on this verse. It says, what should a man give for his soul? What would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and lost his soul? And, and, uh, and MacArthur said, that wouldn't be a very good deal. <laughs> wouldn't be a good deal at all. Um, yes, Dean. Right. Well, when, when I took this class from Dr. Block, what we need to realize is what the Jewish people were willing to accept and what we may be required by modern standards, it doesn't mean that there was no editing. It doesn't mean that there isn't a process involved and that people compiled it later and that somebody else added the part about Moses' death. When Jesus said Moses wrote about me, he wasn't making the kind of uh, claim that maybe somebody would, would want to used as a modern claim, but this was the source of the Pentateuch. That's what we would claim. Now, the question that, that we get into, and I'm thankful for new, uh, some new trends in this regard. There aren't too many new trends that are good, but here's one, one that is. It used to be that the scholarship spent all our time trying to this, this source criticism. You know, where did this come from? Where did this come from? And why is this like this? And, and uh, you know, the Hebrew, for example, the Hebrew of the Masoretic text is not the same Hebrew as the Hebrew that would exist in the time of Moses. If you find old inscriptions, all right? So it's updated Hebrew. And so the, the fact is we can't figure all this out because we don't know. There's no way to know the process. How did it end up in the Masoretic text from the time of Moses to the time they had this? Well, nobody knows. So you can write all kinds of books trying to figure that out, or you can just take the Bible and read it and believe it. Amen. And I chose the latter. <laughs> okay. The positive trend is in this interpreting narrative for being narrative. And it's actually, in an interesting way, taken some of the very brilliant scholarship that liberals have, because a lot of these liberals have got all these PhDs, and, and suddenly they decide, you know, this is getting boring arguing about JEDP. Let's see if we can figure out what we have. Some, whoever wrote it, they'll just say, we don't know who wrote it. But whoever wrote it, they're trying to tell us something. What are they trying to tell us? And then they're reading a literature for being literature and then explaining it. And they can actually come out and get it right. 
And so uh, it gives us access to scholarship that's no longer fighting us. It's just helping us understand Moses. So that's a good trend. Because there's a lot of... This was written in Hebrew or is it in Greek? And I don't read Hebrew and Greek, and I defend it on scholars, but I've seen that there's a lot of scholarship from people that may not even believe that they're... You know, believe that God inspired us or even believe that it's true... The same way I can read a uh, Mark Twain and see what does Mark Twain find to say. This, they're reading the Bible and telling me an un, 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 uneducated non-scholarly what it says and what it says I can believe because yeah. it's being opened to me by a scholar that believes it. That's, uh, that's true. Let me give you the illustration and then we'll get back to our thing here. In uh, theological dictionary of the New Testament, which is the standard Greek work, it's this big series. Um, the entry for under faith, pistos, is written by Rudolf Boltman. Boltman is famous for having demythologized the Bible. He didn't believe there was any miracles or angels or demons or anything. And we had to take the Miz out and go back and find out the truth. But he was given, he's a brilliant scholar, but I believe an unbeliever. He was given the assignment, explain the use of the word faith in the Greek, as it was used in the Old Testament Septuagint and by Paul and by John in, in the New Testament writers. And he does so brilliantly and he accurately tells you what it means. He doesn't have that faith, but he knows what it means. Amen. All right, so we can, you know, it's just a tool to know what the Greek means, whether you believe or not. It's the same Bible if you believe it. So the point is, we take this as the inspired Word of God. When we get to heaven, we can ask Moses what all he did and didn't do as far as writing it. Uh, in the meantime, we don't know, so let's just read it and believe it. Can we agree with that? All right. Moses wrote about Christ. Uh, he, he considered the reproach of Christ greater treasure, riches than the treasures of Egypt. So here we think about the limitless, seemingly limitless wealth of Egypt. And somehow, by faith, Moses believed the reproach of Christ, that is, being identified with the chosen people of God and therefore being alienated from the world, hated by the people around, all because they are the ones that were promised that through their seed would come the promise of salvation to the world. And that's the only good, it's not a good reason, but it's the only reason the world hates the Jews. Because Satan knows that God promised them that through their lineage that salvation would come. Amen. And so Satan has always stirred up hatred against the Jews. Amen. And then when we become children of Abraham by faith, we get in on that. Amen. <laughs> we get in on being hated by the world. Hal Lindsey was talking did anybody Hal Lindsey was talking about that um, about from uh, Romans eleven at the conference. All right, so uh, we have Moses and Christ. It says here uh, in Lane, Moses deliberately turned his attention away from the present suffering to the future reward. His faith consisted in an emphatic refusal of the present, visible rewards of status and privilege, and a certain expectation of the yet unseen but enduring reward bestowed by God to which he could only look ahead. Paul says... Likewise, 
If we have trusted in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most miserable. Why did Paul say that? I remember when I was battling against people in the 80s that were wanting to believe this health and wealth gospel and that God wanted everybody rich and you know, having high status in this world. And I, I asked one of these pastors to believe this. I, I've shown that verse. Paul says, if we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we're most miserable. Now, if it's true what you're saying, that Christians are going to be more wealthy, more healthy, more happy, more prosperous, and have more status in society than everybody else, because we're going to be headed out to tail all these things. Well, then what was Paul talking about that we'd be miserable if all we had was this life. It doesn't sound that miserable to me. We'd be better than everybody else. The reason he says that we have no eternal hope is that we've already given up friendship with the world, status in the world, being loved by the world, and put ourselves in a vulnerable position where we may lose our job, we might be ostracized, and who knows what's going to happen to us, because we believe in the eternal hope. So it just doesn't add up if you read the whole Bible. So here he gave up treasures to go out in the wilderness with a bunch of people that didn't treat him very well. <laughs> what a deal. <laughs> okay, um, some passages to look up. Barb, could you look up Psalm 3716 and Pat? Psalm 89, 50 and 51 and Noel. Isaiah 51, 7, and Diane, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, Elizabeth, Matthew 5, 11 and 12. I got a few more, but let's wait on that for a second. Okay, Psalm 37, 16. Better the little that the righteous have than the wealth of many. All right, I'll repeat that so you can hear it. Better the little the righteous have than the wealth of many wicked. <laughs> Amen. So we see this is a theme, isn't it? It isn't just isolated in Hebrews. Better the little that the righteous have. Um, would you rather have salvation or be Ted Turner? <laughs> okay, I guess that's an Amen. <laughs> All right, uh, Psalm 89, 50 and 51. Remember, O Lord, the reproach of your servants, how I bear in my bosom the reproach of all the many peoples, with which your enemies have reproached, O Lord, with which they have reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Okay, remember the reproach of your servants. So they, again, were lamenting, but yet rejoicing in the Lord that because they were serving God, they were reproached by the people around them. Um, amazing thing, though, that it, how consistent this has been. That in itself serves to me as evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Just the Jews, just studying the Jews and their history should bring people to know the Bible's true. Because that they, that they still exist, that they're back in the land, that they've been continually hated by all the people in the world over and over again throughout history, even though all they tend to do is go into a country and be good citizens. Yeah. You work hard, get educated, uh, help the society that they're in with the many talents that they've displayed, 
And that buys them hatred from the world. Why? There's only one explanation. God really did choose them. Amen. That's how you understand it. That's how history makes sense. Um, Isaiah 51 and verse 7. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. Do not fear the reproach of man, or be dismayed at their revilings. And this is encouragement that we definitely need because it's still true today. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Wow. Wow. Don't glory in anything other than this, that you understand and know the Lord. That would be a good verse to put on the wall. (laughs) Very, very excellent. Is, is there something like that in the New Testament? Didn't Paul say something like that? So let him boast or glories, glory in the Lord. So, that one, that, uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, very, very excellent verse. Well worth uh, memorizing or whatever you do with verses that you want to keep in front of you. Refrigerator magnet. <laughs> All right. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 was that one. Excellent verse. Now, into the New Testament, Matthew 5, 11 and uh, 12. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of um, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets. Okay, so that's tying continuity. That's how they persecuted the righteous in the Old Testament. Jesus said, you rejoice when this happens, because that's the way it's always been. And what did he say? Your reward in heaven is great. So again, you've got to look forward to the reward if indeed you're coming into this persecution. No, I think that it's easy to end up getting like a martyr complex and maybe be persecuted for the wrong reason. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's easy to do. There's a qualifier because of me and because of the gospel. We can give needless offense that's worth you know, whacking us for, yeah. but that's right. not what we glory in. It's getting the message right, getting the, right. The, the, the gospel right, and if we get persecuted for that, then, then it's okay. Yeah, and Peter addresses that, by the way. He says, if you're buffeted for your faults, what glory is that? Exactly. We, we need to make sure it's for the right reason, because of Christ. Thank you for that comment. Uh, all of these uh, strike home personally here, because um, a self-appointed patron of my family has, uh, has announced me as a not member of the family. And uh, because I try to preach the gospel for the family. But thanks for that comment, because that shows me that um, I was spreading the gospel. It wasn't, I wasn't a, I'm not a martyr, but 
but I was spreading the gospel, and that's why they have their Catholics. They're all Catholics. So, again, thanks a lot. But I've just been a pain in the neck in my own life to say, well, it's God's fault. Brad is. Yeah, Brad? I always think, you know, if, uh, if you're not being persecuted or ostracized for your walk with God and you're in the marketplace, wherever you're at, you better check your Christianity out because, you know, this is divisive. It's exclusive. The gospel, I mean, uh, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to bring you folks. It's going to bring out the state. It's going to abolish you. If you're, if you're telling people the good news, I mean, all kinds of resistance and opposition yeah, the people, the Mark and some of the people who go out and do street preaching, you certainly run into that. <laughs> but we avoided that one. be obnoxious. I mean, you know, there's tact, you need skill, and there's a right way to present the gospel. I mean, it will bring reproach. Yeah, you know, one of the sovereign. Um, providential things God did in my life as a brand new Christian that I know was the Lord was that when I first met the Lord, because I was such a blasphemer and an angry person against the Lord. I mean, I was just very, very nasty. I got saved, and I, but I was working with these guys at this feed plant in Sheldon, Iowa on midnight shift, and there was this one roughneck guy that had been in prison part of his life that worked there. And when I came back and told those guys I was a Christian, that guy took it upon himself to try to knock me down. He was going to, he, he just attacked me every day and mocked Christ and mocked me. Um, and I was just a brand new Christian. But you know, that was the best thing that could have happened. I, I, I wouldn't have given that guy the satisfaction backslide. So he was, he was, uh, this, it may be sent by Satan, but he ended up doing some good. He made me more strong as a Christian. Yes? I think one thing we forget is that you know, the Bible the Bible is a, is a story you know, the, the underlying message in the Bible is that there's conflict. And that, you know, Christ came back and died on the cross and he's going to come back a second time because he's redeeming a rebellious world. He's taking back his creation. And the world will tell you that you know wisdom and understanding and its religion leads to synthesis. In other words, everything comes together. But everything in the Bible talks about distinctions, about separations, about choosing sides. Amen. And when Moses chose the Hebrews over Pharaoh. He chose a side. He went, you know, uh, he, he knew there was a separation and he went one way. And even you're talking about people that were in, church, are in churches now and they're not giving the gospel. And they're surprised and they're all upset. No, we're in a battle every day of our lives. Paul talks about it. He talks about who our struggle is with. Amen. He talks about what our weapons are. And, and we know that Christ, you know, go into Revelations, go into Revelations 19, or, or 11, 19, and see the image of Christ coming back to judge and to make war. 
And, and you'll see that everything is being separated out. In the Bible, there's dichotomies. There's light and darkness, truth and lies. Uh, you know, the goats and the sheep. Amen. Jesus says, I, 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 I've come, I brought my word. And I haven't come to bring peace, but a sword to separate. So know that you're in this battle. And, and a lot of this stuff won't be so confusing. It won't be so surprising. And, you know, when Bob preaches every Sunday up there uh, on the pulpit... <clears throat> In battling what the world is trying to suppress, the knowledge of God. And it's what Satan tries to suppress in, in the Garden of Eden. True knowledge of God with lies. With this idea that everything is the same. Everything is coming together. All is one. God is in you. You are in him. We're all the same. No. no. There's this separation. Just like the, the Red Sea was separated for, for the Jews to pass through. Uh, there's this huge dichotomy. And it's, it's going to come to a culmination uh, yes. you know, at the end of the age. Well, amen. That's, and that's certainly a theme throughout the Bible. I keep thinking of that passage where it says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Um, that blood atonement is absolutely necessary because it saves us from God's wrath against our sin. Amen. And that's how we overcome. Uh, a couple other passages. Um, let me see if I get the name right. Levon? Yeah. I got it. <laughs> Thank you. It helps because then we, we have to think of names. Acts 5.41. And then Keith. 2 Corinthians 12.10. And Karen, 1 Peter 4.14. 1 Peter 4.14. So we got Acts 5.41, 2 Corinthians 12.10, 1 Peter 4.14. Okay, when you get to Acts, go ahead. So they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. That was when the first persecution broke out against the Christians and they departed rejoicing. Did it say that they were chosen? What did it say? Rejoicing because of why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer, suffer reproach. Because the council didn't want them to preach about Christ. They said, no, don't do anything more. And we don't want to hear about this Jesus. So you take out the gospel, they'll let you do whatever you want. 2 Corinthians 12, 10. Okay. Paul is complaining about his thorn in the flesh to God. God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may, be, may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Yeah. He asked God to take away the thorn, and God didn't do it. And the reason was it kept him dependent on God's grace. This has been true for many people. I once heard about Spurgeon's weakness. Spurgeon, the great preacher, was prone to depression. He would get in a bleak, dark bouts of depression that he couldn't pass. He had no way to get out of. And... 
despite that, he would get himself in the pulpit, prepared, preach the Word of God to the people, write his sermons, and uh, go back to being depressed. And he, um, and he said that if he didn't think that this was allowed by the sovereign hand of God, it would be unbearable. He never had an answer to it, but he kept on, and he was faithful through all those years, despite the fact that he just was would get under this dark cloud that he couldn't pull himself out of. Yes. Um, this is, I can't tell you how wonderful this, this you know, hear this discussion about persecution. Where we've been, I mean, we never would have heard that in the pulpit. And I mean, we were just because we went, we've been through a great deal of persecution, including even I had a I had a county judge that deemed I was mentally ill because I believed in Jesus. That will make sense when you sit against me. But, um, you know, and that, not that they actually said they preach a prosperity gospel, but it was always love. You can just, you just go witness at work. you just everywhere. Nobody's going to ever, you're never going to be persecuted. They're never going to say anything against you. And, this week, and there are some people that empathize with us, but it was like, you must be doing something wrong because you have all these bad things that you really have well, so did like, no, so did Paul. Well, in America, we kind of think nothing succeeds like success, and yeah. <laughs> okay, let's get the passage in Peter, one Peter four fourteen. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, you're blessed. So, nothing has changed, by the way. <laughs> Nothing's changed. The gospel itself is what's divisive. Okay? It just is. And it always has been. And there's nothing we can do to make it not that way. Other than delete certain things out of it, but then it's no longer the gospel. That's the bottom line. Um, why is the gospel offensive to people? Because it tells us that we're all such wretched sinners deserving hell that we need Christ's blood to avert God's wrath against our sin. And that's, 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 people just take that to be offensive. And also it's exclusive. Are you saying that all these other people are lost? Yes. Yes. That's absolutely the truth. Um, I don't know if you can get these in the archives yet, but MacArthur has had some series on the radio, I think, last week in one place. I got them from Norm Knudsen about the disasters that hit the, you know, he was a tsunami and stuff. Oh, did he have a clear gospel in there? And he kept going back to the same thing. Unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And he says, the, the amazing thing isn't that so many people die. The amazing thing is that God allows anyone to live in their sinful condition. So, wow, on MacArthur. Yes, Dean. I think that's one of the challenges of actually witnessing whether it be on the street or on the Yes, and uh, I was very pleased with Hal Lindsey yesterday at the conference because he got the gospel right. Absolutely got it right. Unashamedly got it right. And he said the same thing. And um, I was listening to it because I was out on a TV out there and then Tom Marshall came up and was asking me about radio and I was trying to listen Lindsay, but I heard what he was saying. 
He said the same thing. The amazing thing is that anybody's allowed to live on in their sinfulness. God's not obligated to save anyone. He lets us go on because He's long-suffering and he's, uh, and He gives time for repentance. But God isn't obligated to keep people alive, much less save anybody. But He does. Yes. Yeah, light came in the world and men love darkness rather than light because that the light reproves them. Right. And so, yeah, it's all through the Gospels. Let me show a parallel before we run out of time. Uh, there's a parallel between Hebrews 11 uh, here and 25 and 26 and back in Hebrews 10 where there was a warning about apostasy. Um, and here, I want you to get the application that they were getting here in Hebrews. He told them, reminded them that there was a previous time when they were willing to suffer affliction. They were willing to have the seizure of their property. And these things happened to them. And then later, after all this, they started thinking, you know, why go through all this? We'll just go back to Judaism and the temple and our old friends and we won't have to have all this affliction. Okay? And so the, the reason we're studying Moses is the author of Hebrews is using him as an example to these Hebrew people that they would follow Moses. And listen to what he told them earlier in chapter 10, starting with verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, accepted joyfully the seizure of property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Same theme. Verse 35, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And, and so, that was the admonition earlier. And now we're going into the faith chapter to say, how can you do that? How are you going to persevere? And how are you going to walk with endurance? Well, by faith. And then there's these people who did that they knew about, like Moses. And so we got a wonderful example of somebody who endured affliction with the people of God because of a future promise. The ironic thing is that he's equating with the Jews going back to Judaism as of Moses going back to Egypt. Right. Exactly. It's a, he's drawing a parallel. The Jews, well, even the people that went out into the wilderness, they want to go back to Egypt. These Christians want to go back to their Judaism. He says that's like going back to Egypt. Because Judaism is all about the Jewish Messiah. And to be truly a Jew, that's fully giving praise to God, Judah means praise, you need to believe in Messiah. And then you'll be bringing praise to God. So that's what that was all about. Now, we've got a few minutes... Um, Let's introduce verse 27. We've got to get through a little more than one verse. Alright? 27. By faith, we're talking about Moses, by faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him as unseen. Now I'm going to introduce what, what seems a little bit problematic and let's see if we can resolve it. Here's the problem. If you're following this chronologically, which it appears it is, because it talks about him refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Then later comes the Passover. So this 
leaving Egypt is not a reference to the Passover. It's a reference to when he went to Midian. Most likely. Now, here's the question. How could he be in faith leaving when, in fact, he was running for his life? <laughs> well, I've got, I've got, I thought William Lane had some pretty good answers on that. Some commentators said, well, this must be a reference to the Passover because it doesn't seem to apply very well to the incident of the killing of the Egyptian and then fleeing uh, for 40 years. But I thought Lane had some good explanations that we can keep their chronology and I think find comfort in it um, at the same time. I thought this was very good. Let me read it to you. Uh, he talks about Philo and Josephus and some of the intentions they made and says this. They bear independent witness to a tradition of interpretation that stressed Moses' fearlessness with respect to the Pharaoh, a tradition to which the writer of Hebrews may also have been heir. More significantly, in verse 23, the writer went beyond the detail of Exodus 2.2 in the Septuagint and emphasizing the lack of fear of the royal edict in Moses' parents. In other words, the, the parents didn't fear the edict. Well, that didn't say that necessarily in Exodus, but there was a Jewish tradition that, that's, that they had a lack of fear. The deduction, and they did not fear the decree of the king, is virtually parallel in form and content to the factual statement of verse 27 that Moses left Egypt, quote, not fearing the rage of the king. So it would be like his parents. Both at the beginning and at the conclusion of the unit on Moses as a young man, the writer emphasizes the role of faith in overcoming fear of the king. Um, this is the key to the interpretation of, of verse 27. Moses did express fear when he knew his violent action had become public knowledge, but by faith he overcame his fear of reprisals, left Egypt, finding in faith a substantiation of hope as yet unrealized and in events yet unseen. The emphasis upon faith overcoming fear is indicative of the pastoral intention of the writer. So Moses has had fear, but his faith overcame his fear. And the fact that it wasn't yet the time, but 40 years later, was in God's providence. Because Moses did come back. Now, I think of that passage in Mark where the man says, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. And I think, to be honest, we all have fears. And faith isn't proven by utter fearlessness. Right. Faith is proven by still believing and still obeying even when you fear. And you're still doing what God said even when you fear. And um, I think we find more encouragement in that than, than we do in the idea that these guys are some other kind of being altogether than like we are. But, but if we see that people uh, are of like nature and that God by grace can turn a fearful Moses into an overcomer, he can turn a fear, fearful you and me Amen. into an overcomer. And so ultimately, we may fear the consequence of telling somebody the truth of the gospel, especially if it's our family. We may lose our family, like Sam was talking about. Say, so, well, you're not a part of them anymore. Nobody wants that outcome. Nobody wants to show up at Christmas and have it, and be the black sheep, so to speak, where everybody's looking down their nose at you. But 
even fearing that, if we know that it's so important that people know who Jesus is, we'll, we're willing to overcome those fears, do it, and suffer the consequences. Yes. Really? You know, their idea of being successful in the world, having a lot of money, you know, about the same mindset, you know, most people in the world have, you know. I'm a failure in their eyes. Jeremiah was too, I guess. The question is whether you do the will of God. That's how you define success. God bless you, Brad. God bless you. Amen. Amen. I'm a failure in, in their eyes. And, and nobody wants to feel that way because it's just a natural thing that you grow up in a family. You want your family to hold you in high regard. Jesus said there's no one who's left mother, brother, father's lands, whatever in the list, sisters, for, for my sake and for the sake of the kingdom, will not receive hundredfold fathers, mothers, brothers, sisters, and persecutions in the life to come, eternal life. Now, how is it that we receive a hundredfold mothers, brothers, fathers, sisters. We, we're grafted into the family of God. And you go anywhere in the world and you run into a truly born-again Christian who loves Jesus Christ, you have a brother or a sister, and there's a connection there. Amen. And, that, and, um, and this family is always going to be there for us. And this family will be gathered together ultimately in eternity. And it says He'll wipe every tear from their eyes. And He will be our God and we'll be His people. And so that's the hundredfold and, and more than that. So uh, be encouraged. And uh, thank you for sharing your testimonies. I, it's really touching to me to just hear people right here who said, I've lost my family because of the Gospel, but it's worth it because we need to have the Gospel. Amen. And pray for each other and that we could be strong in this. And may the Lord... Use our testimony to, who knows, some of those family members may still get saved. So, God bless you. Uh, Roger Oakland will be speaking upstairs at 1030. Can I ask you a quick question? What is phenotheism? What? I was reading a sentence in a book, and in the sentence was monotheism, polytheism, and phenotheism. I haven't... I've never seen that either.